0: Like, no introduction, well, no nothing. You well, you were there all, all of a sudden, so lovely, right? Do you want to stall? Like Philip. Nah, I'm good, bro. Man, how many times have you prayed like that? You remember Philip, eh, in Acts, where he just is suddenly with the Ethiopian guy, and then when he's done, he's suddenly somewhere else? How many times have you prayed that God would just do that so you didn't have to drive? No? Heaps? Ah, bunch of weirdos. I prayed all the time. Good. Hey, Kia ora, Morena. Uh, buenos dias. Hola. Good to see you guys, Hey, eh? Any other hola? Any other Hablé espanol? No? It's all good? Hey, and welcome to the podcast, folks. Hope you're doing super well if you're driving. Both hands on steering wheel, all that good stuff. If you're washing dishes. Um, hope it's a life-changing experience. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Washing dishes. Hey, so we're in the Book of Ruth, eh, The last chapter. Um, if you got your Bible, maybe jump over Chapter 4. We're going to read a bunch of it as we get into it. Um, one of the big things you see in Ruth, uh, I talked a bit about this last Sunday, right? But one of the big things you see in the book of Ruth is the hand of God. And so one of the things I'd encourage you to do if you haven't read through Ruth lately, just the whole book, um, just do that sometime. So it, it honestly takes like 15 minutes, maybe 20, if you're kind of a slower reader. Um, and the cool thing you see when you read through the whole book in one sitting is you really do see God's hand in it, right? So sometimes if you read through just little bits, you can get a bit caught up in the story, which is all good. Um, but I think it's good to just step back and read it, and you're just like, oh my goodness, this is ridiculous, the hand of God, the hand of God, the hand of God, oh my goodness, amazing. Um, I've listened to it a whole bunch of times in the car, so driving in this morning, just chuck it on, um, new version, and some random dude just read it to me, amazing. Hey, so let me get us up to speed, so if you've missed it, and you're like, Ruth chapter, what is happening in this story, then let me give you some context, so... I've written it a bit like dramatically, okay, so just go with me and just relax. Instead of, because I did it, like I preached last Sunday and I gave us an update and I was like, I don't just want to do another update, it's kind of like boring, so I've made it a bit more dramatically, okay, so you ready for some drama stuff? Yep, yep. Shut team. Okay, just so you know, this side, useless response just then. These guys are amazing, you guys, you are amazing people, but your response is bad, let's separate... So let me read this, and I'll try and be a little bit weird when I read it. So there's a little summary up to the beginning of chapter four. So Naomi and Ruth are very poor widows. Will someone rescue them, or are they doomed to poverty forever? Ruth is from Moab, which is a country that Israel hated, as they've been at war with each other forever. Will Ruth forever be an outcast, hated by Israel, or is there someone who may rescue her? Boaz is an older guy who is very well off and has come to see that Ruth is a bit of a fox and a super hard worker. As some might say, she is Marifan or Ruth Esther La Bomba. Will Boaz get the girl or live out his days alone and alone? (laughs) Naomi, through some cunning moves, a bath, some perfume, and a whole lot of hard work by Ruth, has hooked Ruth up with Boaz. But, given the societal pressures of Ruth being a Moabite, is the relationship doomed? Or will there be marriage, a baby, descendants? As I saw at the end of chapter 3, there is someone else in line to marry Ruth before Boaz. No! Will this unnamed stranger ruin the amazing love story? Or does Boaz have a plan so cunning you could call it a weasel? Alrighty. So that's our update. That's from Blackadder, if anyone didn't get that reference. It's good, Rome. Right? Hey, so let's, um, let's get going. So here's the, the first thing I want to talk about, anxious excitement, right? So anxious excitement, not anxious fear, but anxious excitement. So one of my main times I experience an- anxious excitement is when anything's coming in the mail that is usually shiny and new and hopefully has an Apple symbol on it with a chomp out of it. Like, if that's coming in the mail, I'm just, like, a complete nerd. So I bought an Apple thing last week, and it was getting delivered here to church, and I was just so excited, and I'm checking the update because you can track it. Like, literally, not really. Not really. Every five minutes, not really, like every at least every two hours. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's left Auckland. Oh, my gosh, it's in Hamilton. I'm all excited. And then I had a thing pop up saying we tried to deliver it, and there was no one there. And I'm like, I'm literally here. What are you doing? And because I'd put the church address on it, they came to the church doors that are over there, and it's locked. So they didn't deliver it. They didn't even think to come in the cafe. And I was like, ah, ringing, ah, each of my seat. Anxious excitement, right? <laughs> um, what about you? Grab a friend, real quick. And um, what brings you anxious excitement? So not anxious fear, anxious excitement. So grab a friend, have a little. Caught it all. What brings you anxious excitement? Okay. Anyone want to share apart from this sector here because they're weird? Okay. Dave says anxious excitement for him is Christmas. It's pretty cool. Anyone else? What else? What else brings you anxious excitement? Yeah. Performing, yeah, it's a bit of fear mixed in, eh, which is the anxious, but you're like, woo, so good, eh, so good. Anyone else? Anxious excitement, Ross? Yeah, totally in, you've got a new job, no more night shift, whoop, whoop, so good, eh. It's that excitement, but, ooh, yeah. So that's Boaz, right, now, you could debate with me after if you want, but I'm probably not going to care too much, I'll love you, but I'm not going to care. The way I'm seeing this whole chapter four is, is Boaz just on the edge of his seat. He's finally got a fox, um, a la bomba, that he wants to marry. She's amazing. But then this shady guy turns up out of nowhere. He doesn't even have a name. And you're like, no. And he's like, ah. Oh, so it's pretty intense, right? That's how I read it. So um, I've broken it up into some, some little sections. So here's the first section, um, Ruth 4, 1 to 4. So we're going to read it. So you've got your Bible. Let's all get over there. And I've called this The Clever Setup, okay? The Clever Setup. So turn to someone beside you. It's a real audience participation Sunday. So turn to someone beside you and say, the clever setup. But you've got to try and say it dramatically. So don't just be like, the clever setup. Try and dramatic it, right? The clever setup or the clever setup or whatever. Is that all good? Okay. Hey, let me read this, eh? So if you've got your Bible, um, you've got a device, you've got a something, let's read um, chapter 4. I'll explain a bit as I go through, right? So, um, verse 1. Uh, Boaz, he's kind of the hero of the story, right? We love Boaz. He's the man. Uh, Went to the town gate and took a seat there. So just to explain this, this is real different. So in Jewish culture, um, all the transactions, the marketplace, and everything happened at the town gate. So a lot of us have watched movies from the ancient Near East. We're like, isn't there like a central thingy? And it's like, nah, there's really not. So in Roman uh, culture, you would always have a forum that would be in the middle of a village or in the middle of a city. Uh, In Greek culture, you'd always have a agora. Oh, woo. So they'd always have an agora, right, which is a place of commerce, trade, um, where judgments would happen and rulings and all this kind of stuff. But in Jewish culture, they never had um, this. It was always at the front. So if you look at um, at little uh, maps, pictures, and you can see this from archaeology stuff, of Jewish villages they'd always were towns. They'd always have a real hard-out wall around to protect them and then just packed with houses. So there was nowhere to meet. So whenever you were going to meet and discuss trade or um, legal things or whatever, they'd always do it outside the town gate. So when you're reading it, you're like, why the heck does he meet at the gate? Why isn't he in the the Agora in the middle? And you're like, "Ah, ah-ha-ha, you're foolishly mixing up your Greek culture with your Hebrew culture. So I thought that was kind of a cool thing. So this is one of those ones where this week when you're chatting with someone, you just kind of bring that up. When you're talking to them, yeah, we should go to Agora, which of course reflects the Greek way. It's not like Roman with the forum, but did you know, so you can just sound real wise. Is that good? Okay. (laughs) Um, Just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by, so Boaz called out to him, come over here and sit down, friend. I really like that because I don't think that Boaz likes this guy. You know why, right? Because he wants to marry Ruth, and this is the guy that's in line. Remember the end of chapter 3? So Ruth and Boaz have had a chat, and she's like, I want you to redeem me, i.e. marry me. And he's like, woo! And then he's like, but there's someone else in line. So I kind of think he's like, yeah, come over and sit down here you know, there's already a, a thumbtack on the seat, and he's like, ha ha, no, nah. um, I want to talk to you, so they sat down together, then Boaz called 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses, so you know something important's going to happen, and Boaz said to the family redeemer, now we've got to stop for a second and think, how does Boaz say this, like, I love when I read the Bible, imagining how they say it, um, does Boaz say this? Um, like just totally nonchalant, like he doesn't really care, so the guy doesn't think there's something really important going on? Or does he say it with anxious excitement, like sitting on the edge of his seat? So let me read it in both ways, right? Um, So Boaz said to the family redeemer, I'll read it in the who really cares way, so that the guy doesn't think, hang on a minute, there's more to this. Hmm, this is a good deal. So he's just saying it like he doesn't give a rip. And maybe he said it like this. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, eh, eh, you know Naomi who came back from Moab, Oh, man, well, wow. but you know, she is selling the land. Oh, my goodness, that's filled with rocks, by the way, and it's rubbish, who'd want to buy it? That's extra, that's all. That belonged to our relative Elimelech. Man, you know, I am just suddenly thought, oh, I should speak to you about it so you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, the rock land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away, because I'm next in line, you know, whatever, right? Um, Or did he say it more like this? Is that okay, doing this? Oh, good. You guys are freaking me out. Or did he say it like this? Like, this is the anxious excitement. This is the way I imagine it, because I think he really loves Ruth. So when I was thinking about this week, I went back and read through Ruth, the book, a couple of times, and I was like, yeah, I think he really does love her. It's not just this weird obligation. So did he say it more like this? And this is my, like, schoolboy impressions, because he's so anxious excitement. It's like he's getting an Apple product. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, (sighs) Oh, my goodness. Okay, bro. You know Naomi who came back from Moab. Oh, my goodness. Well, she is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. <laughs> Sorry, bro. Man, I thought I should speak to you about it so you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, man, then buy it in the presence of these witnesses. We don't want it. Ah! Then let me know right away because I'm next to, to redeem it after you. <laughs> and then we have this crazy response. The man replied, Eh all right, I'll redeem it. And every time I read, I just imagine Bo's going, no, (laughs) right? Because he knows Ruth is a fox. If you didn't hear the fox thing, that was all last time, chapter three. She's a real hard worker. She's bathed and put on perfume. Oh my gosh. He wants to marry her. And then this no-name clown turns up out of nowhere and you're just like, what the heck? But as the title says, this is all part of a clever setup, right? A clever setup. Um, just a little side-side a little note on this whole redeeming thing, because it's kind of weird, and I want to unpack this a lot um, later on. So you can see a little quote I got from the Tyndale Old Testament commentary. It says this, The importance attached to preventing property from passing out of the family seems strange to us, but the law provided that a family's property, because that's what this is all about at the moment, should not be permanently alienated. If a man were hard up, he might raise money by disposing of his land, But he could do this only as a temporary measure. And when things improved, he had the right to redeem his land or buy it back. If he were totally unable to do this, one of his kinsmen could do it. And so there's this whole very strong um, law that God's put, you can read it in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where God's put in place where when someone's real poor, and Ruth and Naomi are really poor... They could sell their land to get money, right? But they could sell it to someone within the family, and then it stays within the family, and that's a really big um, cultural thing. And so that's why Boaz has gone to this, the the first possible family redeemer, right? And said, did you want to redeem the land? And all he's talked about at this point is the land, right? And that's part of the clever setup, because the cunning-like little bit is coming in a second. Um, I wanted to do a little side thing here. I was talking about this with Jose this week, and I talked about a, a really cool little note out of chapter three, which, which I didn't have time to talk about last week, and it's one of Jose's, like, fa- it links to one of Jose's favorite verses, and she was like, oh my gosh, you have to talk about that, and it really fits with where we're going, so I want to um, jump sideways a little bit and, and look at this real quick, and this is from Ruth chapter two, and Tina referenced it in the questions for the life groups, which is really cool, um, Ruth chapter two, and then Ruth chapter three, so um, go back to chapter two if you've got your Bible away. Go back to chapter 2. We're going to read verses 11 and 12. Um, So if you've read through it or you've been following along in the the story, you'll see that Boaz's generosity to Ruth is just incredible. So you remember in chapter 2, he says to his harvesters, as you're harvesting the the grain, um, so in their culture, if you dropped some, you weren't allowed to pick it up. Right, so you're harvesting the grain, so they would have had a like a scythe thingy, they're cutting it and they're collecting it into bundles. If they drop some, then they're not allowed to go back, and it's part of God's provision for widows and people that are poor, they can get the drop stuff. But Boaz goes the next level, and I did a bunch of reading this week, and it's like you never see this anywhere else. This is Boaz just being crazy generous to Ruth. He actually says to his guys, actually start dropping stuff on purpose, which they would have been like, Why? Because we want as much grain as we can, but he's like, Oh, because she's. La bomba. She's a fox. She's a hard worker. So just like casually drop it, which I always think the guys are like, yeah, we don't care, man. It's not our grain. Drop, drop, drop. Um, and Ruth is collecting up all this, this grain, right? Um, and, then, and this is in the middle of all that crazy stuff happening. In verse 10, Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I'm just a foreigner. And then I love his reply. And this is verse 11. You say no, Boaz replied. But I also know about everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard how you left your father and your mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. So you've got to remember that um, Naomi, so Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi is is, um, Boaz's close relative, right? So he knows her. So he just really, really respects the fact that um, Ruth has left everything to care for this mother-in-law, his relative, he just loves that. But then he does this cool little prayer. So verse 12, I love this. Verse 12. And this is his little prayer over um, Ruth. May the Lord, the God of Israel. And then he says this real weird thing. Under whose wings you've come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you've done. And then read it again. This is his prayer. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you've done. And I love this little phrase there, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Um, I'm sure you've heard this before, because this is a real common theme in the Bible, talking about um, God taking us under his wings, right? And it's not like God has wings, but it's this image that you see again and again through the Bible, where um, you see like heavy rain come, and you'll literally see a mother um, in the, the nest, and she'll put out her wings to spread it over so all the little Peep, 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 guys! Don't get chicks. I think we technically call them. Don't get wet, right? She protects them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Don't forget, you guys are in negative numbers for response, so you might want to pick up the response just a Ted. You guys, kind of on the fence. You guys are kicking me out of the park. It's awesome. Okay. Um, I read a story, true story, uh, several years ago where there was a fire in a barn in America. There always seems to be fires in barns in America, right? And after the fire, they'd got the fire out and the whole barn was um, just totally destroyed, they went through just kind of um, getting rid of the, all the burnt stuff, and they found a dead, completely fried, sad, not funny, um, chicken. True story, right? And the chicken was totally dead, and as the farmer was walking through the barn you know, just doing stuff, he kicked the chicken, and as he kicked it off, what comes flying out? The chicks. <laughs> all the little chicks. Peep beep 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 beep. And it's like, oh my goodness. The mother had literally sacrificed herself. And apparently this is quite common for the chicks and burnt like Joseph and I have seen hawks come down to attack our chickens when they had chicks. And the, the mother chicken, which is tiny, is just like, You want a piece of me, hawk? It's all red to protect us little chickens. You're like, so this is the imagery. This is what Boaz praise for Ruth. You've come from a foreign land. You've come to this new God. Man, may he protect you under his wings. Is that good? You've got it, eh? You've got the wings thing? Okay, so now we see the coolest thing. So jump over to 3 verse 9, and I just love this. Um, I love this. Where are we? Um, 3 verse 9. So this is, if you remember last week, if you missed it, go and listen to the podcast. Um, Boaz is asleep, and Ruth comes and uncovers his feet so that he'll wake up in the night because we always wake up when we've got cold feet. And um, he says, when he wakes up in the middle of the night, she does this so that they can have a talk when there's no one listening, right? Who are you, he asked. And she says, I'm your servant Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me for you are my family redeemer. Now, if you're reading in the ESV or if we were reading in the Hebrew, it would sound like this. I am your servant Ruth, she replied. Spread your wings over me. For you and my family redeemer, it's the exact same Hebrew word. Now, I just love this, right? This challenged me a lot this week. What we see here is that Boaz prayed a prayer of blessing for Ruth, right? And prayed that God would take you under his protection, his wings, his covering. But what God's done is God's now spoken to Boaz and he said, yeah, you are the answer to your own prayer. Do you see that? He said to Boaz, you are the answer to this prayer, Now, I was thinking this week, man, I wonder how many times I pray for you all heaps. There's a bunch of you that I have a little prayer list, and some of you are like, every day, if I think you're completely crazy. Some of you are in the every second day list, right? Some of you, I'm like, that's just too weird, I don't even pray. No, I'm joking. Um, But man, as I was thinking about this week, there's a bunch of you I pray for, and I was praying, and I was thinking, am I meant to be kind of the... I mean, it's no, it's God, but should I be doing more to be the answer to that prayer? Does it make sense? So I'm praying for God to protect someone, God to guide someone, God to care for someone, and I say this carefully, it's not enough for me to do that and then just sit back. I need to pray that and then be asking God, God, did you want to use me in their life? Do you have a word that I should go and say to them? Is there some way I can encourage them? I can lift them up? Heaps of times God's like, no, no, I'm good. You do the praying, I've got someone else, or I'm doing it, it's all good. But I love how right here you just see Boaz. Answer his own prayer. I love this. I know a lot of you in this church are going through hard times. I know there's a bunch of people here with struggling in, in business. There's some marriages. People are struggling. People have got crazy kids. There's all sorts of weird stuff going on. Um, and I wanted to just rest on this just for a few minutes. So I, want to, um, I just want to read um, some of these psalms that talk about God sheltering um, with his wings. Uh, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to get Mahalia to email this out this week, just these verses, because they're pretty powerful. So I just want you to pause for a second, and if you're going through a hard time, or if you're not, man, it's always good to be encouraged by God. Just take these verses and kind of hold on to them and go, this is the way God speaks to me around this cool imagery of taking me under his wings of protection and and care. Listen to this. Psalm 17 verse 8 says, guard, this is an amazing verse, guard me as you would guard your own eyes. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. I love that, eh? Psalm 36, 7. How precious is your unfailing love, O God! All humanity finds shelter in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 63, 7. Because you are my helper, I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 91, 4. He will cover you with his feathers, he will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. I just love this, eh? I love how, how Boaz prays this prayer. But then it's like, oh, I'm the answer to it. I'm the one who can be the wings of Yahweh to this poor widow. I just love that, eh? It's beautiful, way, eh? Is it beautiful? Yeah. It's interesting. You guys are nodders. They talk. So that was a great nodding response. <laughs> but I just love that, eh? I've, I actually sat in that quite a bit this week. I was like, this is really cool. Okay, so that's the first bit, right? Here's the second point. Um, the trap is sprung. So turn to someone and go, the trap is sprung. Was that all good? The trap is sprung. Bro, you've got no friends. The trap is sprung. Shut up, bro. All good. Hey, let me read verse 5. So you saw that Boaz never mentioned Ruth, right? He just mentioned the land, and the guy's like, yeah, I'm keen on some more land, sweet as. And then we get to, um, to verse 5, which is, is so cool. And so this is the trap. So he set him up, right? Because he's not silly. Then Boaz told him, of course. And I always do the fingers. I don't know why. The fingers, you know, like, hmm, he's being cunning. Of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also, this is the trap, also requires that you marry Ruth. And I love how he adds this, the Moabite widow. Because you've got to remember, Israel hates Moab. Moab is forever attacking and destroying. Israel's mind is just like, Ugh! I just love how he adds that. It also requires you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. <laughs> that way she can have children and will carry on her husband's name and keep the land and the family. Um, I just love this, like, response. And then you see this total change, right? Um, this total change. So here's, here's the next little bit. Um, the plan worked. Woo! So turn to someone and go, the plan worked. Woo-hoo-hoo! How do you want to do that? It's okay. woo So good. Good participation, team. All right, so let me keep reading. And then the, the response, the guy was going to buy it, remember? But now they've said about this whole Ruth, the Moabite widow, ew. And there he goes, oh, well, then I can't redeem it. The family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. I cannot do it. Um, it's real interesting here that his name is never given. And I read a bunch of commentaries this week studying for it, and all of them reference the fact that his name is not given. And they found that interesting, and they say, they, they think... And their theory is that it's because what he does here in Jewish culture is just heinous. This is horrible. You would never do this. You would never go and a widow is in need and you have the ability to redeem her, to help her, which he can do financially because he's going to buy the land. But when he sees there's a widow thrown in and he's just like, nah, I'm not going to do that. And a lot of commentators I read said the reason his name's not given so people couldn't, like, later on reading it, be like, oh, yeah, that guy, man. You know what I mean? He's just the unnamed family redeemer. It's kind of random, right? Um, So why does he say this? What changes? So there's a couple of main reasons. There's a few, but I I pulled out two big ones. Um, The first one is that he just simply doesn't want to endanger his own family. So this gets a bit culturally funky. So if this freaks you out, come and talk to me afterwards because you're like, what the heck is going on? So in Jewish culture, they could, in all the ancient Near East at this time, you could have multiple wives, right? I got one, she's legit, don't need any more. This is a mad idea, right? Plus, I think it's illegal and I'd end up in jail, so let's not even go there, right? Um, but in their culture, you could have multiple wives. And what seems to happen is that the unnamed family redeemer, he's all keen to get the land, but he doesn't want to marry Ruth. Because if he marries Ruth, then they will have a kid, because that's the plan, to get the line of Elimelech going on again. They'll have a descendant, and that descendant will be Ruth's descendant. It'll also be his, but more importantly, it's Ruth's descendant. So now that one, that son is entitled to all the land. Does it make sense? So he never actually gets the land. But more than that, that son, because it's his descendant, is now entitled to his land. (laughs) And so that's why he uses this careful phrase, it will endanger my estate. And he's saying, I'm all happy to get the land, but I don't want to marry her, because then when we have a kid, that kid... I don't get any blessing, but that kid's going to take some of my land. So he's just like, eh, deal off. You see that, eh? Yeah. So that's one reason. And that's why in their culture it's like, not cool. That is, that's a terrible way to be. He has the financial means to redeem it and to look after them, but he's just being a total jerk. It's like, this is not cool. Uh, then the other reason, which kept coming up, and I just thought was hilarious, is it's because she's a Moabite. And we hate the Moabites. It's like, I'm not going to marry an Australian. Are you mental? It's like, what are you talking about? That's the thinking. Does that make sense? Yeah, you're good. Um, and so this is a big thing. And that's why um, Boaz keeps saying that the Moabite widow, so that he's like, ew, I'm not going to marry her. And then the funniest part that I read, which I thought was hilarious, is it's not just that she's a Moabite, but what happened to her first husband, died. (laughs) And so they were like, maybe the guy's like, okay, hang on, hang on. I'd love to get the land, but if I get the land, I get the wife. But if I get the wife, then heaps of my land, my inheritance could go to her, smelly kid. Um, Plus, she's a Moabite who we hate, stink. Plus, her last husband died, and I'm not sure I want to take that risk because maybe there's something funky going on. Do I, like, sleep with a knife? You know what I mean? I was like, man, that's pretty funny. I thought that was funny. I don't know about you guys laughing, but I thought it was pretty funny. Um, one of the things I, I kept coming back to in this um, is this whole thing of redemption, right? And you see this whole idea of, of Boaz redeeming not just the land, but he redeems Ruth and he redeems Naomi. And I'm going to unpack it now looking at a bunch of other verses, but the thing you see, and to me this is just Absolutely amazing. You see Boaz at at personal cost, because it costs them a chunk of money to buy their land and then to care for them and look after them. But you see this massive change for, for Ruth and Naomi, where Boaz redeems them. And he doesn't just redeem them from poverty, but he redeems them to be a key part of his family. And this is really important to get, to be a key part of his family. And one of the things I'd love to see, and we don't see it in the text, one of the things I'd love to know is, after their marriage, is she ever called Ruth the Moabites? Again? I don't think so. <laughs> because now she's Ruth's. That's it. <laughs> or maybe Ruth, who's married to Boaz. She's Jewish. <laughs> she's bought into the family of Yahweh. And I just love that. It's not that just Boaz redeems her from slavery. He redeems her and pulls her into something, which is her family. In chapter one, she said, I'm and she says this, it's real clear, right, to Naomi, I'm leaving my my land, I'm leaving my people, I'm leaving everything, and I'm leaving my God, I'm coming to your land, your people, your God. But the whole way through the book, she keeps getting called the Moabites, the Moabites, the Moabites. And I just wonder if when Boaz marries her, he takes her from slavery and he brings her into this place of blessing and this place of awesomeness, right? One of the things I want to, and I just want to sit on this for a minute, is this redemption that we have as Christians. And Dave referred to this before, Nick referred to it when he was reading um, from Revelation before. And so I want to look at a couple of verses, and I'm going to unpack these a bit. So here's the first one. This is talking about redemption. So this is Titus 2.14. And the he here is Jesus. So Jesus gave his life to free us. I just need to pray, sorry. I just need to pray. Yeah, mighty God, I I need your wisdom. I just want to preach this really powerfully, eh? that we would again, or for the first time, I don't know, grasp the incredible nature of our redemption. Give me your words, Jesus. Amen. Um, Jesus gave his life to free us, love that, eh, from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us, his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. And and right there you see a summary of the entire story of Ruth. (laughs) You see it, right? You look at that. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us. Ruth and Naomi are are poor. They are trapped in poverty. In their culture, there is no way out of poverty. They are so poor that they would only own one set of clothes. There's not multiple clothes. For Ruth to take a bath and put on perfume, when you read that, you're like, really? Where did she get the perfume, Right? They would be dirt poor, like hand to mouth. And their family redeemer, Boaz, comes along and he lifts them. He redeems them out of this place of poverty where they are stuck. And he takes them into this place of blessing. He's really wealthy. We see that at the beginning of chapter 2. Everything about them changes now. Ruth has status. She has meaning. (laughs) She has identity. Man, every single one of us in this room. And and I know some of you grew up in awesome Christian families and, like, the most evil thing you did is stole a cookie one day that you shouldn't have. You're like... But then some of us have some pretty awesome backstories that we're like, yeah, I get this, man. I get this, man. My life of sin was crap, and I was messed up, and only Jesus could save me from it. But even if you're a Christian, I mean, you grew up in a Christian family, and you did one little thing wrong, then you are headed for hell forever. The Bible makes it clear. And when we look at this verse, we have to just step back and go, holy cow, or whatever you want to say. Man, that story of redemption is my story of redemption, taken from captivity to sin and cleansed and purified and brought into a place of blessing, right? I love it, eh? I want to unpack it from Colossians 1, because it's real clear here. Let me read this, and then I'm going to unpack it in a couple of little ways. Colossians 1, verse 21. Uh, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies. That's extreme, right? Separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you. This is this kind of odd, this whole idea of redemption to himself through the death of Christ and his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And here we go. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fold. Amazing, man. Let me break this down into three bits. I've underlined that first bit. This is my first point here. We were utterly helpless. You were enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Again, I don't care how beautiful a life you've had, and if you're like, man, honestly, I don't even know if I ever sinned. You sinned. You've sinned. Some of us in this room are like, <laughs> yeah, I've sinned, man. <laughs> I've got lists of them. Um, but every one of us was caught in that, captured in that. And I love how he says it here, you were enemies. And again, whether you felt like it or not, that's who you were. You were an enemy of God because you were living in sin. That's where you were, you were caught in captured in it, right? That's why I gave it this, this first bit is this, you're utterly helpless, right? You're utterly helpless. And then we have this the, the next little bit, eh? and I underlined it, yet, and it's just one of those like, oh my goodness, shut up, yet, right? Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. Um, this is the, the core of our redemption, and, and this is where we see Jesus dying on the cross, and we're going to take communion later on, which reflects this, right? When Jesus is on the cross and his body's broken, smashed, beard ripped out, man. I, I pull out one beard here and it's about pass out with pain. His body's broken. His, his lifeblood is, is shed. His lifeblood is poured out, showing that he gave everything. There's nothing more he could give to redeem us. His body is broken. His blood is poured out for us on the cross. And, and we see Jesus say that crazy phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you deserted me? Right? It's this one hour of need. Right? creator of the universe, all-powerful, son of God. The one time that he really needs someone is when he's on the cross, when he needs the Father connection and there's no one there. And he's literally like, my God, my God, why have you deserted me? Why? And the answer is because you are now sin. You are the sin. You are the enemy of God that, that we should have been. Right? And this is part of that redemption. Again, for Boaz to redeem Ruth and Naomi comes at a huge personal cost for him, but he doesn't just redeem them to um, out of poverty, he redeems them into this place of blessing, and when I was studying it this week, I saw this cool quote which made me go, oh my goodness, that's so much bigger than I've ever thought of redemption before, this is it here from, from the New Bible Dictionary, redemption means deliverance from some evil by payment of a price, it's more than simple deliverance, Thus, prisoners of war might be released on payment of a price, which is called a ransom. Let me read that again. Redemption means deliverance from some evil by payment of a price. It's more than simple deliverance. It's not just deliverance. Thus, prisoners of war might be released on payment of a price, which is called a ransom, part of the redemption. So just to make it real clear in case you're missing it, which I have for years, this is the difference, Right? Deliverance is just saving from evil. Redemption is saving from evil to something really good. And this is what we see in in the story of Boaz and Ruth. Boaz doesn't just save them from poverty and then give them some money and be like, good luck with that, guys. That's not what he does, right? He redeems Ruth and Naomi from poverty and then brings them into his own family of blessing and connection. And that's exactly what God does to every one of us. And to me, it's something you've really got to grasp. You are, whether you like it or not, you were an enemy of God, a total sinner with no way of saving yourself. You were destined for eternity in hell, forever and ever and ever, away from God, right? That's where you were heading. But God, because of his love and because he sacrificed Jesus in your place, he reaches down. And he doesn't just deliver you. He doesn't just pull you out and go, well, good luck, Ella. I've saved you from sin. Now sin no more. Because we all know Allah, and we know within two seconds there'd be another list of sins. Right? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen as she dissolves. God doesn't just deliver Allah, He redeems Allah. He takes Allah from an enemy, a sinner, and He brings her into this place of blessing and guidance and connection. And ah, oh, just I love that, eh? I just love that. This is the, the last bit, right? As a result of this redemption, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Man, this to me is something we've got to hold to, eh? Because I think we're really good at reminding ourselves of our sin. I'm the master at it. I am the master of during a week when things are good, remembering something bad I did. And it might be 20 years ago, it might've been this week, and then I dwell on it and I'm like, man... And to me, this is the kind of verse, I need another tattoo on me somewhere of this verse, so that when I feel like that, I go, that's not who I am. I've been not just delivered, but redeemed by Jesus. Yeah, I still sin and stuff up, but man, now I am holy and I am blameless. And I stand faultless before Jesus. And I need to stand in that and believe that and live in that, right? Jesus didn't just redeem, uh, didn't just deliver me. He redeemed me. He took me from that place of sin, that place of being in enemy with God. And he brought me into this place of blessing. Now, we didn't read the end of the chapter, but just so you know how it ends. Um, obviously, they get married. Yay! And then they have a Pepe, a baby. Woo! And does anyone know the line of the baby? You guys have all read it, so someone will. What's the line of their baby? Ruth, who's a Moabites. Bo's baby is the line of... Yeah, David and then Jesus. Now, and you've got to get this. So in Jewish culture, lineage is just massive. And so in Jewish culture, to realize that this Moabites, our most hated enemies, now becomes the great-grandmother of David, the greatest king ever. So a 1,000 years later at the time of Jesus, people are still talking about David as the greatest king. And to step back and go, yeah, you know who David's great-grandmother was? It's a Moabites. You're like, what? And then like heaps of you said, the line of Jesus. And then you just go, man. When Boaz redeemed Ruth, he didn't just bring her kind of into it. He brought her right into the family of God, right? Right into a place of blessing. How much further could you go than to be the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus? It doesn't get any more legit than that. That's like next level, right? And I think we miss it. I think we miss it. That we haven't just been redeemed from sin and brought into a place of blessing, but we've been redeemed and we've been brought in to being part of the Trinity is what John says in John 17. Because we indwell the Trinity. The Trinity indwells us, right? And so if you're a lady in this room, you're not just whoever you are. You are a a daughter of the creator of the universe. You really are. I often call Kiara a princess. And when she was little, she'd be like, I'm not a princess. I'd be like, you really are. You are a daughter of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. You are a princess. He sounds like I'd call a little princess cow or whatever. (laughs) If you're a daughter in this room, you really are a princess. That's the extent of your redemption. You're not just saved from sin. You're saved into the family of God, to a place of blessing. If you're a guy in this room, you're a son of God. (laughs) You have the same rights and privilege and access to God. You are an heir of the creator of the universe in exactly the same way as Jesus is. If you're a woman, you are an heir of all that God has for you. The redemption that God brings to us is this incredible, extreme thing we see in Boaz. We're not just delivered from sin, we're, we're brought to this place of blessing. Man. Hey, Etu, let's all stand up. Let me finish with a prayer. I want to say this last bit real carefully. Um, and I, I, I want to say this real carefully, so listen, listen hard, eh? When I was praying over this this week and, and last night and this morning, I just kept having a feeling that some of us in this room have not grasped the fullness of what it means to be redeemed sons and daughters of God. And I just kept feeling like some of us in this room are looking at it as deliverance. <laughs> and we're stopping there and we're going, oh, I'm so glad that God's delivered me from sin. And we're missing the whole massive difference between deliverance and redemption that, yeah, you've been delivered from sin, but that's half the story. You've been delivered from sin and brought into a place of blessing as a son and a daughter of the creator of the universe. And with that position comes blessing and guidance and protection. With that position doesn't it come perfect, smooth life and everything's great and I go to work and my bosses are like, hey, here, have these 17 razors and now I'm going to show you lunch every day. It doesn't, that's not it. But in the midst of the chaos and the mad planet spinning out of control and COVID and economies and crazy governments and stuff, I have a stability because I know I'm redeemed from to a place of blessing. So I just want to kind of not, I don't know, challenge, encourage, whatever. If as I'm saying this, you're like, man, I've never really thought about being a son of God, being a daughter of God. What does that mean? What does that entitle me to? then you're only holding on to being delivered, which is only part of it. We're delivered and brought into this place of blessing. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to carry on. I don't know, God. I just feel frustrated, eh, right now? I feel like... Um, I don't grasp it, eh? I don't get the fullness of what it means that I'm a son of God. I'm not just Craig, living in Mangatauteri. I am a son of God with all the, the rights, all the privileges, all the inheritance of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, because my redemption is so extreme. And help me, help us to grasp that, eh? We want to be people that, that live in a place of blessing, eh? Knowing that we can access, talk to you anytime for guidance and direction and encouragement and uplifting and all that that we need. We know you don't flatten out our lives and make everything amazing and the sun shines every day or anything stupid like that, but we know in the midst of it all, we know you've got us. We know we can come to you for guidance when we're like, oh, I've got no idea what's going on right now. <laughs> And we can have that sense of peace. I pray for anyone listening on the podcast, anyone in this room right now, God, I just pray you help us to understand the fullness of our redemption. We're not just delivered, we are redeemed. We're saved from being enemies with you in a place of sin, heading towards hell for eternity, to now living on this crazy planet with a God who cares about and loves us more than we will ever understand, God. Open our eyes to see this open our hearts open our minds open our souls to understand this God yeah praise the name of Jesus i mean thanks